This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, I have some very brief closing remarks, very brief, and then we will have some questions. So this symposium has explored just, the, just a few of the very many different types of deprivations that can affect lots of different aspects of human cognitive development. And really, given how many different types of deprivations can negatively impact human cognitive development, we can't help but wonder how in the world did we survive and indeed flourish throughout evolution. We could speculate that perhaps because of deprivations, in order to survive, humans had to develop increasingly more powerful mechanisms for resilience. This is a very positive message that we hope that you'll take away from this symposium today. I've got three very brief concluding points. Despite powerful mechanisms for resilience, it is nonetheless critical that we're aware that there are still significant consequences to various types of adversity and challenges that face young children during development. While our brains are very plastic and remarkably adaptive in the face of diversity, especially early in development, not all plastic mechanisms lead to positive adaptations. So one of the goals for seeking a better understanding of the consequences of various types of deprivation from an evolutionary perspective is the hope that this will lead to the development of more effective support systems, interventions, and potentially even preventions to help children thrive in the face of impairment and deprivations. We heard throughout the symposium today that neuroplasticity is greater during early development than later in life. It's interesting to contemplate that perhaps increased neuroplasticity during protracted human development itself evolved as a mechanism to increase the odds that that the young human brain could better overcome the adverse consequences of deprivation and injury. Neuroplasticity is, after all, a response of the brain that happens automatically without any intervention from us. Put simply, the developing brain will find a way, if it possibly can, to overcome diversity and injury. Finally, I'd like to close by recalling a bumper sticker I first saw over 30 years ago here at UCSD on the campus on the car of Dr. Elizabeth Bates, a highly influential, wonderfully insightful cognitive neuroscientist and friend who left us way too soon. It read, ontogeny, which is development, recapitulates phylogeny, evolution. It reminds us that if we want to understand the evolution of the human mind, our best insights will likely come from the study of development. This symposium does just that. It's our hope that focusing specifically on the impacts of early life deprivation on cognition has provided unique insight into the evolutionary origins of the human mind. So now for some questions. Okay, there's one for Alyssa. 
Newport. It says, how about Chinese, which is not a language with letters and phonemes? Do children not learn it in the same way? Uh, so some clarification. Um, what you're talking about is perhaps the writing system, but that is not the spoken language system. Uh, Chinese has sequences of sounds and words made up of sound sequences, just like any other language. Um, the character system for writing is a different representation for purposes of reading and writing. Um, so Chinese, parts of Chinese have single symbols for an entire word. That's not actually uniformly true, but anyway, that is not the same as learning the spoken language. Learning writing systems is a very different thing. So just to be clear, all human languages have the same kind of sound sequences, uh, or if it's a natural sign language, hand shape and movement sequences that I talked about uh, in the experiments that I did. So the learning process might be uh, pretty much the same, except it's applied to a different set of particular sound sequences or sign language sequences because the words of languages are quite different from each other. I got um, quite a few, um, so I'll start. Several of them were asking whether there's an age limit to neuroplasticity and the effects of interventions like fast for word and specifically um, whether or not um, dyslexics that, that are older have the ability to um, moderate their neuroplasticity and improve. And some of the other questions were specifically asking the same kind of question but about aging and whether there are any interventions that are similar to uh, the Fast for Word program that I talked about, um, which focus on aging and perhaps even Alzheimer's. And there is my colleague, Dr. Michael Mersnick, who was a co-founder with me of the um, Scientific Learning Corporation, which is the company that makes uh, all the interventions that I was talking about for children, created a, uh, a branch company, which is called Posit Science, that creates a program called I believe Brain HQ, which is available to the public, uses very similar kinds of interventions like in speeding up your auditory processing and visual processing. Because after all, when we get older, one of the things that happens absolutely automatically is that our brains slow down that couple of hundred milliseconds. And that can have a major impact on how well we can process speech um, and a lot of other functions, um, cognitive functions, as well as motor functions. So these programs are very much the same in terms of them being disguised as computer games, but they really have been shown to be quite effective. So that's a lot of the questions um, that I had. There's a, good, there's a, a question here for um, Professor Nelson. Do you expect the children in the U.S. Um, immigration camps who are separated from their parents and neglected in other ways to be impacted in their, in their cognition long term? Do you know of any research programs following up with these children? Could you, and the second question is, could you predict some of the outcomes of our um, current policies separating children from their parents at the borders? I, I should have seen this coming. Um, so, um, yes, I think that there are uh, a lot of analogies. I think that there are limits. What I um, tell the media who constantly ask about this is that 
we're putting these children at grave harm by these separations. Um, I've worked with a lot of the law firms in the Southern Property Law Center who is representing these kids, so I actually have inside information about these detention centers and these family separations. And about a year or so ago, year and a half ago, I started predicting that uh, these kids would wind up suffering from a whole range of disorders, including anxiety disorders and PTSD, and so far, that seems to be the case. The problem is that there are no systematic studies because the government will not allow anyone in to actually study these kids. There are a handful of studies of looking at uh, situations like this that pretty much confirm that the outcomes are not desirable. Going back to relating it to the question that we just heard from Paula, the question is, um, what, the, what kind of recovery should we expect? And my intuition is that if the separations are short-term and the, the mental health needs of the kids are being monitored and then when the reunions occur, all the supports are in place, then we probably would expect a fair degree of recovery. But some of the stories I've heard are heartbreaking. So, for example, um, the, re, the reunions occur, but then the parents fall apart having felt that they let their kids down. And then when the parents fall apart, the whole caregiving relationships start to slip. So I guess to, to sort of get to the cut to the chase, I'm really concerned about these separations. The extent to which what I talked about earlier will generalize to the situation only goes so far because it's a very different context. But I think these separations, and also you'll notice in the video I showed the kids in cages look a lot like the detention centers that we're seeing um, in, at, at the southern border. So I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. I have some questions here that are for Farinay. Um Why do patients who experience psychotic episodes sometimes not remember things that happened or things that uh, they did during the psychotic episode? First of all, um, I wanted to mention that uh, psychosis and schizophrenic uh, symptoms actually do have some similarity to the amnesic, some features of the amnesic syndrome, although they're not identical and we don't quite understand how um, memory disorders within the context of psychiatric disorders can actually be analyzed and systematically um, investigated. The second thing that I wanted to say is that um, most of us think that the hippocampus works all the time. And sometimes it works without us even realizing that it's sampling information for us for safekeeping. Um, it doesn't mean that we can always retrieve everything that the hippocampus has stored. So it is possible, even in the absence of psychiatric disorders or psychotic episodes, to fail to remember some of the things that we have actually done. This, I'm sure, happens to all of us. Um, but when there is a diagnosis of psychosis, then the problems that may be memory-related do come to the forefront, and they need to be investigated and assessed in terms of their severity within the, within the context of the psychiatric disorder itself, not as an isolated amnesic problem. I think that's the best that I can answer this question. Here's one I think um, maybe Alyssa could answer this one. Can machines learn to speak? And if not now, when? Uh, well, no. Um, <laughs> uh, 
So the particulars of the way that humans learn language, um, I mentioned very, very briefly. I didn't give you any examples of this, uh, or very striking examples of this, but uh, in the way that infants learn, there are very strong biases about things that we think shape languages of the world to have certain kinds of recurring patterns and lots of similarities. You can make up lots of languages in the lab, uh, artificial languages that don't have the properties of human languages, and we found that kids don't learn them very well. So uh, I think the the part that we don't understand about this is what is the full range of biases that humans bring to the task of learning and making languages that make them keep coming out the way they come out. And this is a part of successful learning. Learning devices, no learning device is good at learning everything. Uh, learning devices are very specialized. You have to have the kind of good learning device that learns certain kinds of patterns, and it's going to be great at when you apply it to patterns that actually have the right kind of structure. And if you run that same fabulous learning device trying to learn things that have a very different kind of structure, they're going to be terrible. So the trick to getting machines to be able to learn human languages is knowing what the full set of those biases are that humans bring to the task of learning languages. And as soon as we figure that out, we could build machines that will do a better job of learning human languages. But just building an all-purpose device that could learn anything, it's not going to be really good at anything. Okay. Do you have any more for any th- or for other people other than you? No. <laughs> okay, or me? Okay. I'll just ask you one or two more that were directed at you then. Okay. Or directed to you. Um, what is the percentage of the population affected by developmental amnesia? And are most patients four to eight years old at the time of diagnosis, or do people ever get diagnosed in adulthood? And then I think the second part of that is another question. Are there mitig- given mitigations such as uh, surgeries or other drugs, perhaps, are they possible to overcome this? And does it recover over time because of brain plasticity? So in answer to the first part of the question, um, whether this can be diagnosed actually during adulthood, the answer is that yes. In fact, um, we have quite a number of adults who have um, had these types of experiences that I have described, um, and they have never known why they're having these problems. Their parents have never known why their child has grown up to have such a um, specific and yet profound memory disorder. So they do come to us around the age of 20, 22, 23, partly because the expectation from the parents and from society is that anybody who is intelligent and has been able to um, gain a certain degree of proficiency in language and uh, other aspects of life should be able to become independent. And what I have not emphasized as much as I should have pro- probably is that these individuals actually cannot live independently. The problem is that their memory disorder is not dissimilar to uh, early on, or early stages of Alzheimer's. Because that's exactly what it requires. You know, being independent requires you to be responsible for your own memory, to be able to look to the past experiences and use them in order to um, 
function in the present and also plan for the future. And if you cannot do that, then somebody else needs to support your memory. So they are unable to gain employment, partly because they have not been successful in education. Some of them as a result of the teachers and the parents not knowing exactly what's wrong with them. And some of them, even when it is recognized what the problem is, the education system, neither in the US nor in the UK, and I presume even less so in other parts of the world, can cater to their difficulties. Because what we're trying to uh, experiment with is whether if recall and recollection is not available to them spontaneously, because we recall even without ourselves wanting to specifically call a, a recall strategy to remember something, we do just remember because that's the way the hippocampus works for us. But if it doesn't work like that, then the help has to come externally. And external help means that you have to teach them through recognition. But what does that mean if everything that you have to learn has to be given to you in a multiple choice fashion? Well, it just doesn't, it's not a very effective way of learning. Um, but we are nevertheless uh, at least trying to understand if this works, then maybe it can actually be used in the teaching of the children in school, because that at least is one way of teaching them that might prove beneficial in the long term in terms of getting information into their brain to stay. But many of them do not succeed in education. Very few of them manage to finish secondary school. And um, we have one or two who have actually managed to go to university and get a degree, but they still have to live with someone in order to be able to conduct their day-to-day -day life. And I think one part of the question is, is there recovery? And again, this is something that I should have emphasized and I didn't, but I did point out that what we see is as a result of bilateral pathology to the hippocampus. If it's unilateral, you don't get an amnesic syndrome because then there is neuroplasticity and reorganization. The other, the other hippocampus can compensate to some degree for the loss of the other one. But if you have bilateral damage to the hippocampus, there is no other structure in the brain that would actually give you episodic memory. But the, the, the um, degree of the lesion or the severity of the lesion has to be high enough to basically um, interfere with episodic memory function. And that is, in, in the cases that we have seen, um, from 30% upwards bilateral. And finally, the other part of the question was, what's the incidence in the population? When we first started doing these investigations of the children, um, we thought that just about all of us must have hypoxic ischemic episode at some time or other. Um, I mean, it's not unusual to be deprived of oxygen for a few minutes at a time. And many of us, we thought, would have this kind of experience. However, there is plasticity in terms of adaptation to low oxygen. I mean, people who live at high altitude, for example, they, you, would, you would have thought that if they really are uh, deprived of oxygen to that level, they should all be amnesic, and they're not. So there is adaptation to oxygen supply system. Um, however, in the amnesic cases that we have seen, the 
episode has got to be acute. It really has got to be acute, and it's got to be predominantly not ischemically driven, but hypoxic driven, and it has to be sustained for a period of time, meaning APGAR scores in the neonatal period with less than five for about four minutes, five minutes and above. So many of these babies that we have in our sample basically were pronounced dead on delivery, and then they were revived, and then that's when the injury had occurred. Okay, we have one more, and I think I'm going to ask um, Danielle to address this one. How do you partial out the fact that kids experience abuse and neglect may also be inheriting worse genes because their parents also did? Um, I I think that's a really interesting question. Um, We don't have... I think a good sense of genes that are actually linked to abuse and neglect, but what we do know is that being reared in an abusive or neglectful environment increases the likelihood that as a parent you yourself will display the same type of parenting style. Um, So that's really an experience-dependent transmission, um, and there is some evidence that epigenetic mechanisms are involved, at least in the transmission of um, parenting style on the natural spectrum, as well as um, parenting styles that are uh, associated with maltreatment. But in that case, it's not necessarily an inheritance in the traditional sense um, of DNA. It's an inheritance in the sense of uh, an early life experience. Marcus, where are you? Yeah. There. Thank you. Um, I had a question to ask you because um, I saw that film uh, that you refer to the BBC production, Ghost on Your Genes, and I was very impressed by it because of the implications that it had in terms of the transgenerational effects, which can work both positively and negatively. And I just wondered whether you could elaborate a little bit on that point because um, it seemed to me as though if, um, if there is transgenerational effects in terms of a grandparent doing something and then the effect of it being adversely affecting the grandchild, Mm. that carries a lot of responsibility for us. (laughs) Please. It it does. Um, Thank you for raising that point. uh, I think the first thing to say is that the mammalian experiments that have been done are really very conclusive um, but when it comes to um, the work we've done in, you know, in humans, um, a common response is, ah, yes, but in humans you've got this elaborate culture, and that is just learnt. So where is the evidence for this? You know, where's the really rock-solid evidence of the type of... Uh, associations across the generations, what I call transgenerational responses. So I have to say, until we had the replication in the Uppsala cohorts, um, I was thinking, well, they've got a point. You know, we can't experiment in humans. Um, Now, um, that was, I mean, 40 40 times the size of Ovocarlix, you know. Now, the the question of um, 
harmful uh, things being passed down, I always emphasize that what we're talking about is not Lamarckian inheritance of acquired characteristics. We may see the same thing in uh, two or three generations down, but you saw that I emphasized there that the poor food supply in mid-childhood in the father's father um, was associated with a longer uh, longevity. And so what, what we're actually getting a, a, a glimpse of is um, an adaptive system that itself has evolved uh, um, that uh, will um, allow one... It, it's the resilience coming back, really, uh, of the whole system. So I don't... I got slightly criticised uh, for saying in the, the Ghosts and the Genes programme that we have a great responsibility as guardians of our genome, <laughs> so on. Um, I, I think that uh, um, it works both ways. I, this, I think that, that's the answer. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. So I'm going to go back to my favorite topic, which is resilience, and ask Anne a question. Um, it seems so clear from the work that you've done that having one supportive Adult, hopefully a parent, but not necessarily a parent, is really key to uh, helping children come o overcome all kinds of deprivations and diversities. And I'm wondering, um, just your your feelings about. I mean, we think of all the things that we're taught in school um, that we go on to say, "Gosh, I never use that again." I mean, are there any attempts to teach parenting skills or to give? give younger children more insight into what it's going to be like to be a good parent? Uh, given the influence of good parenting on development, I would say very few efforts are made, at least in this country, to do that, although there are schools where they nurture, you know, where the classroom nurtures babies or where they have a child care center embedded in a high school and people... Some, in some high schools are required to take a course on uh, child development and how to take care of babies and that sort of thing. But, you know, we um, are cautious because we don't want to interfere in the choices that parents make. We have a pretty high barrier for interfering in child rearing. Um, but I also wanted to say that even a, a wonderful parent can't protect you from everything. There are circumstances that are so overwhelming that both the whole caregiving system can be overwhelmed. So I, although I focus on resilience, some of the solutions that we have to think about are reducing risk exposure, both for the family and the children. And the, the, the separation at the border is a, is a good example where we, we shouldn't be doing that. And there are many other situations where, I mean, I do research with families experiencing homelessness. Well, 30 years ago, I knew that homelessness was not good for children and other living things. And yet we're, the, the problem is worse now than it's ever been before. And, you know, coming up with more and more elaborate 
strategies to kind of boost executive function or do all kinds of things to try to shore up a family could be averted if we would just make housing available to families. That wouldn't solve everything, but, you know, we need to prevent some of these situations. Separation. I mean, when I think that one of the most important lessons we've learned in all the years of research on child development has to do with the harm of separating children, it's just appalling what's happening in many places in the world. So... I am a resilience investigator, but I do think we have to think about the full picture. We, we have parents out there, and I see them in shelters, who are you know, doing an amazing job under extraordinarily impossible situations. Thank you. Okay, thank you for being an amazing audience. And again, thank you to the CARTA organization for... Um, this symposium, and uh, Ajit in particular for thinking up the topic. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.